Welcome everybody to Way of the Blade, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Schneider, author of Way of the Blade, 100 of the greatest bloody matches in professional wrestling history. And I am pleased to be joined by Brian Solomon, who is a contributing writer for PWI, Inside the Ropes magazine, the host of the PWI podcast, the author of Pro Wrestling FAQ, WWE Legends, and appropriately for this podcast, the upcoming author of the soon-to-be-released Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. Um, and we appropriately are talking about uh, with the original Sheik and Abdullah the Butcher versus Terry and Dory Funk from July 15th, 1979. Wow, did I really do all those things? That's that was a lot really... of things. I was yeah. I, I went over your bio. I was like, oh, this is more than... This guy's got, guy's got a, a resume. <laughs> Thanks, Phil. Yeah, and and I'm happy to be here talking about one of the masters of the blade. I mean, if we're if we're talking about uh, the way of the blade, then uh, this was the man that lived by that way. Yeah, one of the one of the true uh, iconic roving maniacs in professional wrestling history, the Sheik, right? The uh, what, not the first to do it, but one of the first, right, to really do make his sort of bones with just pure insanity yeah you know i i talk about that in the book a little bit where i i, I want to be clear you know you're right he, he wasn't the first i know a lot of times when people talk about him and maybe because they weren't around back then i mean i wasn't around back then they tend to think oh he was the first guy to do all this ultra violence and you know that had been going on before him i mean you had wild bull curry you had uh danny mcshane i mean people even you know, blading had been a practice even going back to the 40s and 50s. But but I think the difference was the Sheik, yeah, he kind of took it to another level where he became, like you said, this roving maniac who would just go from one territory to another. He was, you know, the, the top draw wherever he went. And you always knew that there was going to be a lot of blood. And, and as far as that goes, he was really one of the first like that and, and he he started to rely more and more on that actually as his career came along because you know he was already wrestling probably all, about 12 to 15 years before he even became a main eventer so his, by that point he was already looking for ways to kind of like you know take shortcuts in his work a little bit and and so he would rely on that stuff quite a bit so he it, there was at some point was he bef- had a gimmick before the chic where his gimmick was that he'd like, you know, work the mat and have do holds. I think I'm going to do any of that stuff, you know, the footage I've seen. Yeah, you know, but he never changed the, the gimmick. I mean, there were a couple of years right out of the Army uh, when he first started wrestling after World War II where he, believe it or not, did wrestle under his real name. But, I mean, it's not – and it was just basically in these tiny little gyms and VFWs and stuff in his in his hometown area. But then once he got the sheet gimmick um, – he got it in 1949, and pe- people go crazy, you know, thinking about this idea. But you can actually find some of it on YouTube. He wrestled probably for a good 10 years as the Sheik, or he was known as the Sheik of Araby, where he didn't really have that same character that we now know. Like He still came to the ring dressed the way you would imagine as the Sheik. He did the prayer in the corner and all that stuff. But then the bell would ring, and he would actually wrestle. Uh, you know, if you don't believe me, you could find it on YouTube. There's matches that still exist. He would have kind of a conventional match. He didn't come across as 
insane. You know what I mean? That came a little bit later. That came when he was uh, really kind of ascending to the main event level, like when he was working in the Detroit area and uh, originally for Jim Barnett and Johnny Doyle in the early 60s. And then he got his own territory. And that's really when, like the 60s, you would have to say the 60s is when he really became that insane, extremely violent character with the fire and everything else. Right, so this match is near the... I mean, I guess he still wrestled into the 90s, right? So he had another 10 years, but not as not as a regular right. attraction, yeah. really, right? I mean, this was near the end of his... I mean, what was, what, what was the Sheik's 80s like? That was... You know, I have a chapter in the book that's dedicated just to the 80s, and the name of the chapter is Wanderer in the Wilderness, mm-hmm. because that was the point in his career where... You know, he really should have hung it up probably by, by the end of the 70s because he had his own territory, big time wrestling in Michigan, and Ohio, um, that lasted from 1964 to 1980. So by the late 70s, the territory was really collapsing and it was going out of business. And his career really should have been winding down because, like, for example, by the time of this match we're talking about, 1979, He is, oh my God, 50, about 53 years old. Do I have that right? Yeah, 53 years old. And, you know, that's really a little bit up there, you know, and, and, but, but he kept, it is, I'm a, I'm a Lucha fan. So, you know, you know, that's like guys, guys, Lucha Libre, they wrestle in their seventies. No problem. But, but yes, outside of Lucha, 53 is getting out of here. He really is. And especially when you think about like, by, by the time of this match, he had been wrestling, for 32 years okay i mean that's like approaching like flare levels you know what i mean and uh he um he started working more and more in japan because the american work was drying up Um, a lot of promoters didn't want to work with him anymore by this point and when you get into the 80s you know basically his territory's out of business he's no longer a member of the nwa and he's just kind of wandering around the country taking indie dates whoever could meet his um, asking price, which was pretty significant. So by about 82, he pretty much went into semi-retirement. Like, he's no longer wrestling full-time after 82. He's kind of just doing a few matches a year. Um, And the reason you see, like you said, he wrestled into the 90s, he came back pretty much full-time in the mid-90s, early 90s, and it was Japan. Again, it was FMW with Atsushi Onita, and I'm sure you probably have a bunch of... FMW matches on this list, I would imagine, but but he went to Japan. Right, no chic ones, but we have uh, uh, Onita Terry Funk is in there, and we've got an Onita Goto match. We've got Onita and Goto against Dragon Master and um, Karisu and yeah. and uh, Megumi Kudo versus Combat Toyota. Yeah, bunch of FMW on that. I could have done a hundred FMW matches, no problem, right? Like, right. Yeah, to, I. Just- Mix it up a little bit and get, get, I wanted to sort of do all the different wrestling throughout the world and throughout history. So you kind of had to stretch, but yeah, FMW was, was the best for a short period of time, but a a really great short period of time. But he, he went there, um, really. And and by that point, you know, he was in his sixties, his body was falling apart. He had artificial hips. He had, you know, um, just very limited mobility. And he went essentially to try to help Sabu. That was the reason he he really came out of semi-retirement was they wanted – like Sabu was an unknown 
commodity in 1991, but the Sheik was this legend. And so Onita wanted Sheik because Onita had been a young boy in all Japan. Onita had carried Baba's like bags and stuff, you know. And so he idolized the Sheik from when he was a teenager, you know, and, and he wanted to bring him in. And so Sheik said, "Okay, I'll come, but I want to bring my nephew with me. And, uh, you know, because he was trying to make him a star. And he succeeded because it really was FMW even before ECW where Sabu started making waves. So that was the reason that he did that. But he wound up re- – he wrestled until 1995. And the only reason he stopped Sheik is that he had a heart attack. He almost died after a match. And and that was it for him. He was like 69 years old. What an appropriate time to retire. Even if he was a luchador, 69 is getting on, uh, getting yeah. on in years. <laughs> yeah, you uh, um, but now that's yeah, it's interesting. I I imagine also part of the advantage of coming in with uh, Sabu is Sabu could do some stuff. Where oh, they, you know, like they, I mean, again, if you're having like a tag match, it goes 14 minutes. The Sheik can do a stab, throw a fireball. Sabu can take the bumps. You know, I mean, that's some, there's some advantages to having a you know a, a younger athletic guy and uh, able to do that. It's funny. It's like Sabu, who I think is Sabu still wrestles, and he wrestles now a lot uh, a lot more like the Sheik did then, where it's kind of like he's going to come. You know, he's an older guy who's take, gotten some miles on his body, but still knows how to you know make a crowd get into what he's doing. Right, and Sabu's style couldn't be any more different. From his uncles. I mean, they look very similar. I mean, especially now that Sabu is a little bit older, it's almost shocking how much they look alike. You know, I, I posted a picture of the Sheik recently because I was promoting the book and a few people mistakenly thought it actually was Sabu. Um, so uh, but I mean, the, that the the, the um, comparison ends there. But you're right, though. I mean, I mean, yeah, sort so. of right. I mean, I, in some ways, certainly in ring style, you know, uh, the Sheik oh. wasn't doing uh jump triple jump moonsaults but the idea of these guys are coming in and it's unclear what they're going to do you know how many people you know who they're going to hurt who in the crowd they're going to attack i mean their their vibe is very similar uh even if they're at the moves they do aren't i mean you know like you could easily see uh that old that sabu ecw entrance when he came in with they came in on the uh a stretcher with a hannibal lecter mask you know, Sheik doing that in 62 wouldn't have the same cultural meaning. I didn't have Sons of Lambs was around, you know, then. But, it, you know, you could see that as a Sheik thing, right? Like, yeah, here's I this mean, uncaged guy. That feels to me like 100% a Paul Heyman idea. It just has that <laughs> that Heyman vibe to it. But, but, yeah, I mean, in some ways he was kind of like the modernized reincarnation of Sheik. And actually Sabu talks about how his original ring name when Sheik first broke him in, was Terry SR. And he never learned what the SR stood for, but his belief was that it stood for Sheik's Revenge, because the Sheik had given him that name, with the idea being that the Sheik was unleashing this new generation of madman onto the wrestling world, you know, who could do all these things that even the Sheik uh, never did. But but you're right, though. I mean, yes, I mean, she was being magnanimous to his nephew and trying to help him. But there also was a little bit of self-serving there. Absolutely. Where he needed somebody to take the bumps. He needed somebody to take the pin. He needed somebody to really do the work, because if you see a lot of those matches, the Sheik's not doing that much. And he doesn't need to. You know, he doesn't need to. He's the Sheik. 
He stands there, he makes faces, he points at the ceiling, he throws fire, he stabs people. And Sabu is really doing the work. But Sheik had been doing that even, honestly, even going back to the era of this All Japan tag match. He already was, you know, no kid. And he was already doing that because Abdullah plays that role in this match. Abdullah the Butcher really kind of carries most of the load. I mean, the Sheik is not in as bad a shape as he would be in the 90s. But by this point, he already was, believe it or not, he already was hurting pretty bad. And Abdullah is is really carrying that their side of this match. Right. Abdullah is the work rate guy yep. in this match, which is funny, obviously, because Abdul- Abdullah, you know, certainly goes on to have a very chic-like career later. Uh, I mean, even then, they're doing very similar things, right? It is It is this idea of these, you know, two, you know, psychos coming in and, and carving people up. Abby is great, you know, as one of the great looks ever in professional wrestling with the weird uh high pants and the side boobs and the scarred forehead and the crazy eyes i mean he you know what an iconic looking guy abdul the butcher uh he's terrifying we, he's- you know obviously you talk you're you, you know a writer for pwi and you know abdul well, both of these guys both abdul and the show, actually all four of these guys really iconic wrestling magazine guys right you oh. know you know the the full color picture of abdul the butcher sticking a fork in somebody's eye is a real like iconic image of my childhood going to delauer's newsstand in oakland california and spending an hour while my mom was shopping at macy's just looking at wrestling magazines a lot of abdullah a lot of funk funks bleeding a lot of the chic throwing fire uh, even yeah. though, you know, I didn't as much see as nearly as many of those matches aren't weren't available for a kid growing up in the Bay Area in the 1980s. Abdullah had the had a uh, WCW run in the late 80s. But Sheik, you know, those guys weren't, Sheik wasn't around really. And, you know, Terry and Dory were wearing cowboy hats and chaps in the WWF, mm, uh, right. which is awesome. a different thing than this, certainly. Although, you know, still, still a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, you know, the, there was even a period where really, if you go back to, say, the 60s and I want to say the early 70s, the two top magazine cover guys by far were The Sheik and Bruno San Martino. And, and Bruno, obviously, because a lot of the magazines were based in, in New York, so there was a little bit of a bias there, you know, because Bruno is the champion in that part of the country, so it was easy to do. But the other one was the Sheik, and I talked to a few of those old-time magazine guys. I was able to talk to Bill After, and I talked to um, Lou Sahadi, who used to do magazines like Wrestling World back then, and he was actually really good friends with the Sheik because they're both uh, Lebanese. And he said they, – they both told me and other people told me flat out, I mean, he made for a great cover. They're not going to put somebody on a cover who's not going to sell. And – a lot of it was the blood. I mean, those blood shots, you know, you don't see that as much today as a selling point, right? But, I mean, like that was considered like a big bloody face on the cover. That was gold. You know, those are some of the most iconic wrestling magazine covers in existence. And he was the guy for that because he bled in every match. Yep. And the art in my book, um, we, we did art instead of photos, but the art in there, which is amazing art uh, by Chris Bryant, is an incredibly talented artist, is uh, it kind of, it's certainly inspired by those wrestling magazine covers and the full pullouts. It's something that we tried to sort of capture through art because it really was like such a, a meaningful, cool thing, right? You don't see that 
blood. So there's not, you know, there's much blood. Although AEW sort of brought back the gore a little bit to major American wrestling, but obviously for a long time it, you know, wasn't there. Oh God, yeah, they they really have in terms of the the. I mean, there are a few that they've done even in the last. I don't know what's it been two years they've been around that. I would rank already as, as among the bloodiest matches I've ever seen. But the difference now is, though, even with all that, you would never put a picture like that on the cover of a magazine. I, I can't imagine anyone doing that. In fact, even with my book, I'm pretty positive, although no one's told me yet, um, that they would, they're not going to let – I don't know what the cover is going to look like, but they're not going to let me have some crazy bloody face on the cover. Oh, that sucks. Come on, you're doing a book about the Sheik. What are you going to show? You're going to have a dry cover on a book about the Sheik? That's blasphemous. I'm hoping (laughs) to be proven wrong. I'm hoping. But I will tell you that once you open that book, there's going to be blood all over the place. But it's a question of will will ECW Press let me have a bloody a bloody cover? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, the the cover of our book is a is a is a is a drawing. I think it might have been Terry Funk from this match. We got a lot of Terry Funk in the book, but of just him, just you know, saturated. Well, he's got it's him. I mean, all four of the guys get color in this match we're talking about, but Funk is probably the the worst slash best of the four of them and the most memorable because he has that there's that moment in the match where it's the hot tag moment you know where they're double teaming dory and funk's on the outside and his face is covered and he's dying to get in and he gets tagged in and his eyes are bugging out of his head the crowd is exploding he's got like you know the classic crimson mask and you could read his lips. You know, it's the reality of it. That's what Terry Funk was so good at, that intensity. Like, he could be goofy and funny and then immediately dramatic and intense. You know, he's mouthing these threatening words to Abdullah and Sheik. And you could tell, you know, he's so uh, gratified to finally be in there and he's going to clean house. And it's that image of his face covered in blood with the eyes popping out. That's It's the most memorable point of the match for me yeah terry's incredible in this incredible i mean he's i i go back and forth on this uh obviously this is uh of who the greatest wrestler of all time is but certainly there are some days where i think it's terry funk and i think there's he's one of the people you could who you can legitimately make that argument for just the longevity and the different things he does i mean he is the guy with incredible amount of variety probably the wrestler i can think of that is the has the most variety in what he can do is there isn't really a terry funk match the way there's a bret hart match or a rick flair match or an el de santo match or a masawa match i mean terry funk you know you don't know what he's gonna get i think he was historically known as a guy who would almost entirely improv doesn't have a set of moves doesn't do a set of certain set of things and you know in this book the book i've got you know we've got funk matches that are just we've got this match we've got it the harley race match from houston for the title uh we've got a match against rick flair and we've got the match against onita and it's like you've got us all of those are completely different and he's just amazing at all of them and here's this really like hero's journey match where he is just destroyed by abby and in chic and has to you know rise lazarus style push back the rock and come out and and and, and to fight again it's just great he's so good yeah. 
that's a great way to put it because that really is the story of the match. And, 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 you know, Terry, it's interesting that you, you talk about him in the sense of potentially the greatest of all time because I don't think that we hear his name enough in that conversation. And it should be. Like, I, I'm not saying I would definitely say he was, but his name should definitely be in the conversation. I mean, he come, but, but he comes from that era, and I think Flair in, in the 80s, that was the beginning of where you really have, like you said, guys that really have a match that they do. You know, even Savage had that where he wanted everything to be, like, perfectly choreographed. But if you go back before that era, like, the guys that came up in the 70s, and I know Flair came up in the 70s, but he wasn't a star till the 80s. The guys that were stars in the 70s and before, those guys really were able to just go. You know, they didn't, and, you know, because I, I, I don't think Funk is special in that regard, because I think guys like Harley Race did the same thing from, from that era. Guys that came up in that era and earlier um, could do the same thing if, if they were really good. So and, I'm going to push back a little bit. I've watched a lot of Harley Race. I think there's definitely race stuff more yes, than there is funk spot. stuff. I, 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 I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, cl- and I think it's probably true. I think wrestling certainly got more, probably got more formulaic as it went along. But even Thez, there's, you watch a bunch of Thez matches and there's some stuff you're going to see Thez do in every match. And he obviously can vary. And there's a lot of variance in flair too, right? It's not like flair, every match, flair match is the same either. I want I don't want to. But I, I, I ne- I've never, you know, you know, I've, I've watched a lot of wrestling, right? I don't know if, uh, over the course of however I've been writing about it, you know, for twenty years, and and and, and, and sort of known as a guy who does the deep dives on shit, like more than it. I just never, out of all the guys I've watched, all the amazing wrestlers, I really think Funk is is unique in that. I mean, if we go back to the French catch stuff that we've been watching lately, and, and so you know, hey, there is a Gilbert Leduc match from the fifties. He's amazing, but you see, can you watch enough Gilbert Leduc? You're going to see what Gilbert Leduc does. And I just, you know, I just he's like Funk's the guy that I just don't have. You know, you hardly ever see him repeat spots. I probably watched hundred, you know, two hundred Larry Terry Funk matches. There's no point we could say, oh yeah, that's the thing Terry Funk did in this other match. And he's just he's remarkable. Yeah, what I love about him is the intensity. Like, like there's just something about him. Like, when I was a, a kid, you know, the thing that that fascinated me, and I still, and it's my bias because it's the way I, you know, c- came to wrestling. Those are the things that you'll always remember. But for me, like, one of the most, if not the most, I don't know how to put it, just unforgettable matches in the history of wrestling is the Empty Arena match with Funk and Lawler. And it's just, it's his intensity. You believe everything he's doing. There's something about it where you're going, you know, it's like the classic Johnny Valentine line or whatever where you're like, yeah, I don't know what, what these other guys are all doing, but I think this might be real. I think what I'm watching here <laughs> might actually be real. Like there's something going on here when he's writhing on the ground and he's and he's calling for Lance Russell and, and he's trying to – He's in he's in horrible pain and he's cowering like a coward, but he's still taking verbal shots at Lawler at the same time. Like it comes to the point where, you know, there are performers in wrestling who you would call geniuses and he's one of them. He's on the list for sure. Yeah, I mean, and we've got, you know, great, ma- great, incredible matches of his for, I don't know, 50 years, maybe not 50, 40. 
There's some very good 2000s Terry Funk matches. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, you know, like, for, I mean, I was a guy at that point, is very, was very old. And, and there's probably, and there's, uh, you know, we don't have as, as, as much of his, like, early 70s stuff, some of it. But it's not as, you know, we don't have very much of his NWA title run, if any, um, yeah, outside but- of some clips. Um, Which is too bad because his, from you know, from every indication, you know, his style kind of morphed and evolved and changed over the course of this really, really long career. So we have a lot of the, you know, middle-aged and crazy and, you know, the kind of this crazy older guy, Terry Funk. But earlier on in his career, he still had that intensity, but he was a very different kind of wrestler. You know, he was uh, in the 70s and stuff, a very different kind of wrestler, and it would be – there's some of it, like the Harley Race match in Toronto when he when he um, loses the title to Race, is phenomenal. But there's there's not enough of that. You know? Have you they, seen the Have you seen the '77 match from Houston against Race? Against Race, you know, I I may have. It was I, part I, of I, the when uh, there was a period like I don't know, maybe four four or five years ago where uh, Bruce Tharp got his hands on all of this Houston footage. Um, oh yes, yes, from, yes, yes, and this this was a match that was in that, and it's yeah. it's a something like a forty five minute NWA title match. It's in the I write it up in the book. It is incredible, and it's like you get it's the best sense of what you think what you would imagine long Terry Funk title defenses would have looked like. Like this, yeah. you get you get this, you go okay, yeah, this is what I imagined what his NWA run was, and it's if you haven't seen it, it is it is a it's it's an arguably one of the best nwa title matches that we have on tape it's that good and it's got my favorite race match ever easy funk is harder but i remember hearing about that houston library because um i know there was a bidding war that went on where wwe was trying to get a hold of it because they wanted to put it on the network and they got outbid. I guess it was by uh, the NWA. I'm pretty sure because then they started that NWA streaming platform, and it was almost all Houston stuff. Um, but I, I know the match you're talking about now that you mention it. But I don't believe I've seen it. I know, you know, that um, Terry, in his relatively short for those days reign as NWA champion, he did come through Houston a lot because obviously, I mean, he's from Texas. And by that point, you know, Sam Houston Coliseum and Paul Bosch, that was sort of like the top spot in Texas to see the NWA world champion. He did come through there a bunch of times. I also remember reading in a few places that Terry Funk was the beginning of kind of a shift in how the NWA world champion would be booked, because that's the point where you get, you know, Sam Mushnick is is kind of stepping away and Jim Barnett is stepping in as far as who's booking the champion. And it became more of what we think about, like with the Harley Race era and the Ric Flair era, where you have this touring um, heel world champion who is meant to kind of make the local guys look like they could beat him and look really good. And he's almost like this borderline coward who goes from town to town, kind of figuring out ways to hold on to his belt. Whereas that really wasn't the Mushnick way of booking the champion, where they wanted guys like briscoe and dory and thez and where where it would be like this great sports hero who was coming to your town and everything was about the integrity of this title whereas later on with terry funk and later champions it became more about building the local stars right sure um obviously i think flair was the apex of that 
Oh God, yeah, and, and, but race as well. But yeah, Flair, and by the by halfway through though, halfway through Flair's um, era as champion though is when Crockett basically just locked everything down. And yeah, he, like and 80, 86, I think was the last, was that the last yeah. year I think where Flair really. Yeah, but by that point, I mean by that point. Flair really is almost like Hogan in the sense that he is the champion of a company more right. than he is the touring world champion. Right. Yeah, that was sort of the end of it. We talked actually when I uh, podcast with I did a podcast with Tony Khan. We talked a lot about the idea of Flair as this guy who would step in and be part of almost everything going on in wrestling, even if he wasn't really part of it. Because uh, we yeah. we talked about the DiBiase uh, DiBiase Flair match, which was sort of just which is basically just used to set up. You know, DiBiase Murdoch and the DiBiase face turn, and how Flores his little you know fingers in so many pots. That right, he starts the Von Erichs Freebird feud. He's a huge part of starting the Lawler Dundee feud in '86. Where he's just like he's around. He's really, but he you know is sort of the uh, I, the line I use was the straw that stirs the drink, even if he's not in the bar. And uh, and uh, and so and yeah, so I, I it would have I, you know obviously. You, I would have loved to see the footage of Funk in the same role because I can imagine he was just incredible as a guy coming into your territory talking shit. I mean, he's such a good pro. <laughs> you know, I can imagine him as the guy coming in, you know, setting up a setting up a big house in a, in a territory somewhere. I can't imagine how great he must have been at that because, you know, he's so, like you said, he can play almost out any role perfectly. Yeah. And he um, was great at it because he'd be, especially in those early years as champ, he would be a babyface when he was in the Carolinas. You know, they loved him there. He was like the local hero star. But literally everywhere else, he would be the heel world champion coming in when he was touring. Uh, that was kind of uh, his job. You know, I'm, I'm contributing to a book that Inside the Ropes is doing right now on um, super cards of the 1980s, right? Where it's like all the pay-per-views and also even pre-pay-per-view, all like the major territory cards. And what I'm finding doing it is exactly what you're saying. Like I'm covering all these major cards in Hawaii, in Puerto Rico, you know, in, in the, in the Superdome, you know, and flair is just turning up everywhere. The, the revolving cast of characters will always be different and flair will be on top everywhere. Yeah. And I mean, said, even a lot of those super cards where he isn't on top, he's kind of, you know, he he he's involved somehow, right? Dusty Kevin Sullivan. He's involved. He was involved in that feud, you know. Lawler Lawler Dundee, Freebirds, Monarchs, all of them. Um, I want to talk a little about Dory in this match too. I'm not a Dory guy. I'm not. He's not a guy I particularly will go out of my way to watch. I think a lot of those Dory long Dory title matches are uh, Sominex. Um, and, and in some ways, I think, uh, responsible for a lot of people's opinions about, uh, about 70s wrestling being boring, which it isn't at all, mostly, but his kind of are, but he's actually really great at these tags. Um, and, uh, as like, I, as like he, you know, he's like a insurance salesman who snaps, because the you know somebody in the office keeps taking his lunch and he just loses his shit. I mean, he's so he's such like a, a schmo in a lot of ways, but he's really great as a guy. You know, I, this is it. I don't right. want anybody moving my stapler. And then he just comes in and starts throwing you know uppercuts and forearms. And I mean, he's a really good brawler in a in a weird way for a guy who who's obviously rep is kind of these you know. Let's put on a let's put on a, a chin lock and work our way out of it. Sort of interviewing title matches, um, oh. but he's fun in these. 
Yeah, and and I'll I'll, I'll say a couple of things about Dory because I want to say first of all, I mean, could there possibly be two more completely different workers than Dory Funk and Terry Funk? It's incredible, and but they mesh so well. I always love the uh, it's hard to describe just the 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 vibe that they always had going of these two brothers that looked out for each other and loved each other and protected each other. It always comes through, you know, it, it's really amazing how they pull it off in any territory they would go to, like even with the Detroit stuff that I was writing about in the book where like, you know, Terry came into Detroit and got annihilated by the Sheik in like 76 or 77. And then everyone's buzzing about, oh my God, wait until Dory hears about this and what's gonna happen, he's gonna be coming for the Sheik. And it's like this built-in storyline an angle that they had wherever they went. And I, I have to say, you know, I know there was this whole thing. I know what you're talking about where there was a whole big thing on Twitter where it was trending about Dory Funk Jr. being boring, which is the most random thing I could ever imagine to trend on Twitter. That was trending on Twitter? It was. It was. It was. That's why I thought you were like maybe part of that. Like I want to say earlier this year or maybe late last year, it became a whole thing on Twitter I don't know how it started. It might have started from like more uh, modern wrestling fans like finding his stuff maybe and being like, why the hell does everybody like this guy? I don't know what it was. But I have to say, you know, he was of his time. And we have to remember that. It's like what I was saying before about how the NWA champion would be booked differently, you know, like post-1975 and pre-1975. Like Dory was still... Dory Fung Jr. was part of that mold of uh, he was of Luthez, Pat O'Connor, those kind of guys where the champion, the, the purpose was you were supposed to believe this guy. Like this guy was supposed to be above the cartoon theatrics of pro wrestling where you would say, oh, there's all this chaos on the undercard, all these clowns running around doing all these silly things. But this is now the world heavyweight title. This is real. That's what they were going for. And I think he was the perfect guy for that. Because if you watch his matches, they're, I mean, yeah, they're not for everybody. I get it. I happen to enjoy them. But they're 100% believable. You believe that you are, like, if there was such a real thing as professional wrestling, where an amateur wrestler would turn pro, um, this is what it would look like. And he was very, very good at that job. And he had to draw he had to because they kept the damn thing on him for four years. I mean, I don't think anybody but Thez had it longer than he did, at least without without losing it. So, I mean, I, I think he deserves more credit. I mean, Terry is the more much, much more colorful. His career went a lot longer. He's remembered better. And I understand that. And I do think he is the better all around performer, meaning Terry. But but Dory's legendary. And, and in this match. He does. He is like you said. He is like that. Um, I don't know how to describe it. He's like the rock in the center of this giant hurricane at sea. You know, he's just he's he's like grounding the whole thing. And he's actually the first guy in the match who bleeds. Yeah, he bleeds. And and, and, and okay, I and I do. I love the dynamic between the two. It almost feels like Terry is the like fuck up younger brother who's always crashing his car or needs to be bailed out. And Dory's like the older brother who's got a family and kids. It's like, oh, Jesus. What is Terry? He's, he got into a bar fight. 
I've got to go right. down into the to the to and, and bail him out of this, or he's in a VFW hall starting trouble, and I got to go over there and see if I can get him out of trouble. So it's kind of a fun night, a fun night, older brother, younger brother dynamic. Obviously, he called Terry a fuck up. He was the NWA champion too, but it has that kind of vibe of like this uncontrollable younger brother and this sort of staid older brother. Just like, all right, let me yes. get let me get my shoes on, <laughs> help Terry out, and then obviously he gets you know, can get pissed off too and and, and, and uh, go when he needs to. Um, you get the sense that the Japanese fans really, uh, re- they really bought into that. Like you, you, exactly what you're describing is what they seem to pick up on. And it's also by virtue of the fact that you always get the sense in these matches over there that Terry is the one that is like the sentimental favorite of the two like like he is this kind of weirdly lovable like how could you not like this guy just for his spirit and his spunk but you never know what he's gonna do you can tell i mean the crowd loves the funks they're like these real life american cowboys come to life you know but of the two of them you, you know terry is the more exciting one and but but Dory is there for a reason. And he like I said, he's the first one that really kind of gets into trouble in the match. Comes in with a bandage, you know. Yeah, he comes in. And I don't know if you uh, and this is really kind of inside baseball stuff, but there's a point in the match there where I think it's when he first uh, bleeds where you can actually see him It's where he's in the corner with Abdullah and Abdullah's wailing on him with the fork and everything else. And Funk comes flying out of the corner, and you see him. I get the feeling that either the referee or Abdullah had passed the blade to him, and you could see him very quickly. He puts it in his mouth in like this sweeping. I'm like, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the match as we're talking. I'm actually yeah. at the point you're talking about. Yeah, you can see him put it in his so, mouth. It's amazing, <laughs> and it's and it's so it's so slick and professional. Like as he's flying through the air. He slips this blade into his mouth. He gets down to the mat, right? He has his face down on the mat. He takes the blade out of his mouth really quickly, slides it across his head, and then puts it back in his mouth. <laughs> and, and I'm sure that, that – and if you're not looking for it, you would never see it. I mean, he's right. really good. And I don't know. I'm assuming then he must have done something else with it at that point. I don't think he wrestled the rest of the match with the blade in his mouth. But I, I don't know where it wound up because the camera goes off of him, so God knows what he. I mean, he might have wrestled the whole match with his blade in his mouth. Oh Wrestles are crazy. I've heard of guys doing that, but I can't. <laughs> that's crazy to me. I mean, oh my God, what if you swallow the thing? I, I can't. How <laughs> oh, horrible! Yeah, uh, but yeah, no, he. Uh, it's it's interesting. I I I've seen a lot of Luthez. I, you know, I, he's a guy who kept motion a lot more than Dory did. I don't know. I, I, I might, I'm st- I, I, I don't want to come off as a guy who's, who's does who's downing 70s NWA title wrestling. I, and maybe, you know, and again, obviously the footage of that is pretty spotty, but some of those Dory Jack Briscoe matches, especially, uh, that we have on tape, man, they, those are guys who will lay in a hold in a way that I don't think Fez did as much. And for the Thez we have. And obviously we don't have as much Thez either, but we got no, some Thez. I mean, Thez is actually more explosive and dynamic than I think his reputation uh, makes people think. Like, for you, you are, too. I, Both of them. I mean, I, you know, for the stuff we've had, we've got more footage from Chicago lately where we've had some long matches with those guys. Those guys had some stuff that would, yeah. you know, would, would be, you know, they weren't necessarily just lying in holds um, in the way 
in the way I, I, you know, by my, some of my least favorite Dorian Briscoe stuff. Another guy I'm not enormously high on for your, like, all, wow. you know, all-timer dudes. Um, this is blasphemy. What's going look, on? Look, man, I'm, you know, I'm a, uh, you know, that's just, this is, I, 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 I'll take a stance. <laughs> it's not always. Briscoe, have you ever seen Briscoe versus Inoki? Yeah, I've seen Briscoe versus Inoki. It's pretty oh good. God, I don't think I've ever seen stiffer looking professional wrestling in my life is what those guys were doing. They looked like they were killing each other. Adoki's the guy I like, sure. Uh, I got to, you know, there's some stiff professional wrestling out there. (laughs) Come on. Have you ever seen the Ikeda Ishikawa match that I read about my book? Yes, I have. Yeah, I mean, he's another one, though. Yeah, but it's true. (laughs) Um, So, uh, but... uh, yeah, so I, it's 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 fun. I, I this but this story, I always like your Dory in tags with Terry. Like that's that's the Dory I enjoy. I think he's, I think their dynamic is great. And then we we talked a little about Abby, but you know Abby, what a what a character that guy is. What an absolute you one of one unique uh, piece of like of, of wrestling history. Abdullah the Butcher is. I just love him, and I admit he's not the most dynamic you know but there the list of amazing you know there's i wouldn't call him a a moves guy and certainly a lot of the abbey later in his career he's a vibe more than a wrestler but man what a vibe <laughs> that's a great way to put it it's, it's like you just want him on your card just because he's there like more than anything else you don't really care what he does just having him come out but but yeah i mean he but and he took so much from the sheik i mean that that almost goes without saying you know he he grew up in Ontario, I believe it was Ontario, and so that was sort of the region where Sheik was all over the TV, and um, he very clearly patterned a lot of what he did after Sheik, especially, you know, when he first broke in, he wasn't even that big of a guy. I mean, he, he was always kind of a thick, burly guy. You know, he was, um, he really was a martial artist early on right. in, his, in his life, and then he got a lot bigger, but, but he, you know, he got everything, like the not talking and... And Sabu as well did that, and the whole thing of like the unpredictability and the explosions of violence, and 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 having a trademark foreign object. Sheik had the pencil, Abdullah had the fork, you know, all that. Even a lot of the ring attire, um, and right. Abby just kind of threw in some like karate thrusts to sort of <laughs> shake it up a little bit. But if you watch it, like in this match, Abdullah's still relatively young, and he's. Bumping, he's the one that's take of the team that's taking the bumps. I mean, does a does a first rope elbow? Yeah, <laughs> it's not gonna do a second rope elbow. It's not gonna go crazier. First rope elbow is pretty nasty though. He gets some nice height on that thing, and, and you know he's got one of the great elbow drops ever. I mean, he really does look like he is, you know, yeah. a, you know, severing somebody's head when he he's drops that like all his weight. It looks oh, like he's putting all his weight down. Brutal. And I think he even does, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't he even do the cactus jack elbow off, you know, off the apron to the outside? I think he does that in this match to Terry Funk when he's being tended on the outside by everybody when he looks like he's dead. Um, And he does that move. Um, He was still able to get around pretty well, even for his size. You know, Sheik does his thing. He does what people want to see. You know, he acts crazy and he stabs a bunch of people. But he doesn't. You can see, like, he doesn't really take a lot of bumps. He doesn't uh, really leave his feet. You know, the only, one of the only things I've seen in Japan of the Sheik really bumping and selling at that age, which I thought was incredible, were 
the matches that he had with Ricky Steamboat. Have you ever seen those? He had a couple of matches oh. in Japan Kinda with a very it. young Steamboat. I think this was like maybe 1980, 81. And Steamboat's on the way up, and the Sheik is most decidedly on the way down. But the Sheik bumps for Steamboat. He, he bumps for drop kicks. He bumps for top rope moves. I've never seen him at that age do that for anyone else except in those matches. Weird. I did not. I do not know about those, and yeah, I will have to check those out. I mean, I I, I, was, I like Steamboat. Although oh, Steamboat yeah. Japan is never somebody who I thought is, has done a ton for me in Japan. He's a guy who's a, a you know obviously some amazing matches in a, in America, but I always thought his yeah. Japan stuff was a little like oh, this doesn't work for whatever reason. So I'm excited to see a recommended Steamboat Japan match as well as a match where the Sheik takes some buffs. Put that yeah, that I, goes I'm in not, my queue for sure. Uh, I'm not saying all-time classic match, right? But but it's interesting to watch because it's young Steamboat. He's working his ass off the way he always does. And the Sheik is actually bumping pretty good for him. And then, of course, it kind of devolves with the pencil and the stabbing, like every Sheik match. And, and Steamboat, like, running for his life, trying not to get killed. But it's interesting to watch this really, like, changing of the guard where you get this guy from a completely different era – you know, that's leaving the moving out of the business, you know, working with this guy who is just getting started. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah, Steamboat I've got uh Steamboat makes the book once. He's in the uh obviously the final conflict. He's gotta make okay. it. I mean he's right. So that's I wrote a lot about that match, which is a all time great match. Uh he's in that he's in. I could have probably found some more stuff, but that's the thing. It's like when you look back on when you do a project like this, you know, you've written, you're obviously written a couple books. You understand. You always look back and go, I could have moved this around. I could have fixed this. I could have added this, taken this out. It's always like a, so. Maybe uh, there may, there may be in sports teams, although he spent so much time in the WWE, he wasn't really a bleeder very much in his WWF run, particularly. No. They had banned it by the end of '86, like beginning yeah. of '87. So that was wasn't even really a possibility if he wanted to. Yeah. Um. So, what is your? Uh, well, I don't want you to tell me your best because you got a book to sell. But what is like your third best Sheik story? My third. Well, well your best one. You got to buy the book to read the best one. But give me, well, uh, give me like you know, give me a great Sheik story that may not be your absolute best Sheik story to close this one out. Because because there's a few. Well, I I have one that I don't know if it, if it's what you're looking for, but I have one that is actually from his childhood. I'm no, um, I'm not looking for anything. I'm looking for a cool story okay. from his childhood. Sounds well, great. <laughs> when I found this story, I I flipped. And I had never heard it mentioned anywhere before, and I found it when I was doing newspaper research, okay, where apparently when the Sheik was 12 years old, I want to say 12 or 13, he ran away from home. He recruited a couple of kids from his neighborhood, like from his block, to join him, and their idea was they were going to hitchhike from Lansing, Michigan to California, <laughs> And they made it about 35 miles before the police caught up with them. And they brought them back to the station and called their parents. And the sheik, well, I couldn't even call him the sheik. I mean, he was Eddie Farhat, said to, they asked him what they were doing. And apparently he said something to the sheriff to the effect of, you know, we're going to California where all the money is. And I, I read that and I'm going, this is incredible. This is a 13-year-old kid. He's A, got the ambition to think of this, to do this. 
B, he has the charisma to actually convince other kids to come with him. And C, he's already talking about, you know, fame and glory. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, of course this guy became the Sheik. Of course he became one of the most colorful and magnetic personalities and shrewdest businessmen in wrestling history. I mean, look at what he was doing when he was in seventh grade, right? <laughs> he had a tough so gag. That's great. I found this, and I'm like, this has to open the book. It has to open the book. And that's the story that opens the book, Blood and Fire. Okay. Great. Well, Ryan, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate uh, you coming on. Let's, uh, why don't you give me some plugs here before we call it? Sure. Um, so, as you said, the name of the book is Blood and Fire. Um, the book is, it's the first biography of the Sheik. It's coming out in March of 2022 from ECW Press. So we're kind of in the final stages of of getting it laid out and getting photos and things like that. Um, anybody that wants updates on it, there's a few places you can go. If you search Pro Wrestling FAQ on Facebook, that's my author page where I, I update everything about that book and other projects that I'm doing. And I am on Twitter and Instagram. I am Brian R. Solomon in both of those places. Brian R. Solomon. Okay, great. And your other two books, I'm assuming, are available. If people want to check those out, they're on uh, Amazon, purchasable. Yes. Uh, WWE Legends is on Amazon, uh, digital and print, and so is uh, Pro Wrestling FAQ. And you know what? If you also are interested in Godzilla movies, which intersect quite a bit. This, with this almost was a Godzilla movie. Right. <laughs> this match. Um, they intersect more than you'd think. Um, I have another book, Godzilla FAQ, which is um, my bestseller, believe it or not. And it's it's also available on Amazon. Okay, great. Well, Brian, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. My pleasure, Phil. Thank All you. Right.